0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 88, and it it's titled, Are You a Stock or a Bond? It is Christmas week here in Idaho. We will again have a white Christmas that's pretty standard, because it's cold in the winter, which is why we often go to Phoenix, where it's sunny and warm. And I thought about not doing an episode for the holidays. I know a lot of shows, podcasts don't do episodes over the holidays, but I'm used to doing episodes. And it's still early in the holiday week, and I have some thoughts and some things that I've been considering and wanted to share. And part of it came from an email I received recently from George, who is in his second year of law school. He studied accounting and finance as an undergraduate with an emphasis on real estate. Now he's in law school. He likes to invest. And as an undergrad, he helped manage a portion of his school endowment fund. They had an investment club or a class and, and a lot of endowments. And, and I saw this when I was an investment advisor. Some of the universities that I worked with set aside or designated a small portion, could have been a hundred thousand, could have been a million to be managed by students. And the students used it as part of a class, as part of a learning activity. And so George did this and really found that he likes to invest. But he's a bit frustrated right now. He wants to invest, but at his current stage of life in law school, he has little financial capital to do so, particularly to buy properties. I mean, certainly he can can invest in in, uh, in equities or in stocks, have a small account. You can use the the app called Robinhood, and there's no commissions, and, and anyone can invest. But I think what he was getting at, he would like to actually invest at a level where he's creating some wealth. George just doesn't feel wealthy. He feels for, poor. But the reality is he is incredibly wealthy. It's just he's not calculating it in the right way. He's focusing on financial wealth. And most of his wealth is in the form of human capital. Human capital was a concept developed by Nobel Prize winner Gary Becker, who was a professor of sociology and economics at the University of Chicago. And human capital represents the discounted value So the value in today's dollars of all your future earnings from work, so salary, bonuses, so all out in the future, if we've discounted those back today, what would be the value of that human capital? And another professor that has written extensively on that is Moshe Milevsky of the University of Toronto. He authored a book that I just finished this week titled, Are You a Stock or a Bond? Identify Your Own Human Capital for a Secure Financial Future. And so I grabbed the title of that book for the title of this episode. So George, if he looks at the value in today's dollars of his future earnings as an attorney, if he practiced over the next 30 years, that could be millions in terms of human capital. And he's investing in that human capital by going to law school, and hopefully that will increase his future earnings power and increase his wealth, his overall wealth. And so the idea of wealth, we have to look at our human capital and we can look at our financial capital. And as George enters the workforce, he'll start converting some of his human capital into financial capital as he saves and invest a portion of his annual salary. So younger workers have a great deal of human capital, but they tend to have less financial capital. Meanwhile, you have retirees or near-retirees that have a smaller amount of human capital as they have fewer years to work in, in terms of either full-time or part-time employment. Ideally, these retirees and irretirees have been diligent over the years in converting much of their human capital into financial capital, but many haven't. I recently got an email from Fran who talked about some of these individuals that might have been in the arts or in academia or just were in professions where really they didn't give much thought to money at all. They were living fulfilling lives, and then... They start to get into their fifties, perhaps their sixties, and are realizing that the level of financial capital that they have might not be sufficient to sustain them through retirement. And when you think about it, you have human capital and financial capital—that's your total wealth. If you don't have sufficient financial capital as you as you age, as you get into your fifties, you just simply have to maximize the value of your human capital by working longer. And there there really isn't any other choice or magic bullet. Now, ideally, that work will be in an area that you find fulfilling, that you can do into your 60s, perhaps into your 70s. And it's something I've thought about a great deal in my situation. I turned 50 this year. And at the age of 46, I quit my job and quote-unquote retired, and didn't have necessarily a plan for what I was going to do. But if you think about that, at age 46, if I chose never to work again, and 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 that did enter my mind to, to not work again, that meant that my the value of my human capital would be zero. There would be no future earnings, and I would have to live entirely on my financial capital. And as I've been retired in, in this regard over the past three and a half years, I've thought a lot about that and I've tried different things and I've, and I've done some things, obviously, to, to monetize my efforts here on the podcast in, in launching the hub. And my view has, has really, really changed as I, I've thought about and I've looked at my nest egg and I contemplate being retired, and in case of retired, primarily dependent on my financial capital to live for the next 30 or 40 years. That is an intimidating thought. And it, it is an intimidating thought for most retirees that are retiring in their 50s or 60s, and, if, and they look at that nest egg, and they, they wonder, will it last? Will it last? And in one way, and making that transition to where you're not getting that income is, can be very, very hard for people. And in one way to make that transition is to not take your human capital balance down to zero, but to find a way to continue to earn some income. Because I can tell you, it, it is much less stressful if you're generating some income part time. And if you're doing it in a way that you you find rewarding. And I, I'd speak about perhaps not doing an episode of the podcast this week, but I've structured my life to where what I do on the podcast, what I do in terms of writing, what I do on the hub, doesn't. it's not a full-time job. It is something that I can do while I travel. It is something I, that is sustainable. It's a pace that is sustainable, that I can sustain for many years. And, and not feel overwhelmed or burnt out. And, that, and so it's a way to essentially restore the value of my human capital so that there's less pressure on my financial capital. There is a chart in this book by Moshe Malefsky where he shows the ratio of human capital to total capital. And as you would expect, if you're younger than 35, oftentimes your human capital is upwards of 90, 95% of your total capital because you have small asset balances. What surprised me about this chart, and it, it's one that he's calculated with the the academic center that he works with, is that even at, at so between ages 35 and 44, human capital still represents 85% of financial capital at 45 to 54 it's still 80%. That's where I was at 46 when I quit my job where most people their human capital is still 80% of their total capital and I was going to go in to retirement assuming that I could live on my financial capital and perhaps I could have but another element that many retirees and near retirees face is we get used to our lifestyle. It's called habit utility. We we don't we, we get to we we get used to living in a certain way and the way that Laprille and, and and I and our family we we don't live an extravagant lifestyle. But we also live a lifestyle that we're used to. And so if I wanted to cut back significantly, we could, and we could stretch out that nest egg indefinitely. And I think of Mr. Money Mustache, who, who is a financial blogger, retired and is living, or purportedly lives on about twenty-five thousand dollars a year. We don't do that <laughs> yet. We're trying, and as we each year, we do an annual budget. And look at, you know, what are there areas that we can cut, that we can reduce to simplify. And there's a quote that I want to share from a gentleman that I'm gonna talk a little bit more about, Edwin Way Teal. He was a naturalist and a writer. For many years, he wrote for Popular Mechanics, and then at the age of 42, he went off on his own to be a freelance writer, and to work on a number of books. Here's his quote. Reduce the complexity of life by eliminating the needless wants of life, and the labors of life reduce themselves. And I thought about that, and I'm not... You, you can take that different different ways, but the idea is, are there things, we look at our annual budget, that we can reduce reduce complexity, simplify, but not necessarily reduce our lifestyle. And so are there additional things? And, and an example is we're making the decision and made the, have made the decision that this spring we're going to sell our house in the town where we live in Idaho and move out to our farm. And so we're going to consolidate our ex- expenses, reduce our expenses in terms of utilities, in terms of taxes in terms of insurance by moving out to our farm. Now that that's a way that we can reduce the complexity of life, the complexity of owning multiple homes and that will reduce our labors in and of themselves. I won't have to work as hard, but also in terms of it will put less stress on our financial capital and I'll have to, I I won't need to convert as much as my human capital to financial capital if there's ways to reduce and simplify our annual expenses without necessarily changing our lifestyle. Because there is this this concept, the idea of habit utility is you get used to something. If you always fly first class like I often did because I got upgraded, sitting back in coach, you feel like you've lost something. Now, <laughs> I'm in coach all the time. And, and I've gotten used to that. And, and it's like anything. You, you have a lot of space in your backyard and you move to a house with a tiny backyard and you feel like you lost something. But eventually, I guess you even get used to that. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. So I'll talk a little bit more about Edwin Teal in a few minutes, but let's get back to this idea of human capital and financial capital as it, as it equates to asset allocation. How do you incorporate human capital into your asset allocation? Well, just as financial assets such as stocks and bonds have different levels of risk as measured by the variability or volatility of returns, different employment situations can be more or less risky as measured by the variability of earnings. For example, tenured university professors have little expected variability in their future earnings powers they're just they 're unlikely to be laid off, so their human capital is like a short term government bond, sure and steady that check's going to come in every year as they continue to teach. Now, if you compare that to a commission-based mutual fund wholesaler, and what a mutual fund wholesaler does is they go and they meet with brokers and other financial advisors and market mutual funds. Their income potentially could be very, could be very volatile if they're a commission-based or they have a, a portion of their compensation that is commission-based. There could be some variability there, particularly because as the stock market sells off, if there is a severe bear market, oftentimes their employers want to reduce their expenses, and so wholesalers could be laid off. And so their human capital is more stock-like, given the potential for highly variable earnings and the risk of getting laid off during a stock market downturn. So how should a university professor invest their financial capital compared to a mutual fund wholesaler in light of this idea of human capital? And this is some of what Moshe Molesky talks about in his book. His view is that if your human capital, your earnings are volatile and potentially could be cut off and could vary year to year, you're much more like a stock your human capital is, and so your financial capital should be invested more conservatively, less investments in in highly variable assets such as stocks. Conversely, if you're the university professor where your earnings are pretty steady and unlikely to be laid off, you can invest even more aggressively. And he even talks about potentially using leverage and in, in the financial capital or the investment portfolio in order to maximize those returns because the human capital is, is is so steady. Now, younger workers have very high human capital balances. So if they have a loss in their financial capital account, their investing account, because those balances tend to be small, they, they have this this human capital to offset. It. And so younger workers can often take additional risk and have more equity exposure. But the point of, of Molesky is we can't ignore our human capital. When I quit my job at 86 and my human capital went to zero, that put a lot of stress on my financial capital. I couldn't be invest primarily in stocks anymore, like I did when I just when I was working full-time and I had my 401k plan that I was trying to maximize. There, I had a much higher weighting in stocks. Once my financial capital balances got larger and I had to depend on it, I definitely was much more conservative in how I invest and continue to be more conservative in how I invest. And so one reason as I look to, again, expand my human capital in terms of my business endeavors related to the podcast, the hub, and other things I do is to allow me potentially to take more investment risk in in my financial capital portfolio. Now, there are also risks to your human capital, and they could be there could be an unexpected surprise, death, early mortality, disability. Could if you have a family, if In my case, right when I was working full-time, if I passed away unexpectedly, taking my human capital to zero, forcing my family to depend on the financial capital that we have or the human capital that they could generate, one way I hedged against that was having life insurance. Life insurance allows us to hedge and protect our human capital, and so as we age, we have Less need of life insurance as a hedge against human capital. Now, perhaps one has life insurance as part of an investment program, but in terms of its basic use to protect against a disruption in human capital, life insurance becomes less needed as you age. Disability insurance the same way. That is there to protect against human capital disruption. Let's return to Edwin Wade Teal. In his 40s, he decided that he wanted to leave his employer, Popular Mechanics. And so suddenly his human capital became more risky as he became more independent. Now, I don't know how he he then invested, but he felt sometimes when we get into our 40s, we, we start to think about where we have been. You could call it a midlife crisis. I don't like to use that term but you start to think maybe there's a different way, and that's exactly where he was. Here's his quote, and this is from an essay I'll link to in the show notes, or if you remember my Insider's Guide, you already got this link. You can sign up for my Insider's Guide weekly email with the show notes, a summary article at moneyfortherestofus.net. So this essay is, it's called Edwin Wade Teal's Healing Journey of North with the Spring, and North with the Spring is a book that that Teal wrote. This essay was by Peter Chytister. And so he had a number of quotes by Teal, and Thiel was talking about the forties. He called he says, quote, The forties are the slack water years of life. The tide has ceased running in one direction, but it has not begun to flow in the other. Youth is the flood tide, age the ebb. The forties lie between Here, then, is a time for gambling on ourselves, for making, in the Emersonian sense, the highest investment of all. At 42, while my health is good, while I'm at the top of my work at the magazine, while I have the best financial prospects, the time is right to dare to live according to the pattern of my mind. So he decided to leave the magazine and write full-time for himself. Now, he prepared himself to do that. He, he made sure he didn't make any huge financial commitments so that he could have some flexibility in terms of his lifestyle. He got invited by one of the, the high-profile people in New York to join the Exclusive Players Club. And I assume this was like a country club. I, I'm not even sure what it was. This was in the mid-'40s and probably would have cost some upfront payment probably would have to spend just to sort of keep up with the Joneses until decline. And he wrote in his journal, I want to be free to jump when the jumping time comes, to live in the dunes with almost no income in order to write a better book. And that's what he did. He left and, and started writing. He wrote a number of books. And one of the ideas that he wanted to do was he had learned from this professor at the University of Pennsylvania uh, Dr. John Fogg, that spring in the United States tended to move at a rate between 10 and 15 miles per day and ascends a mountain range at a rate of 100 feet per day. So they wanted to just kind of start in in Florida and then follow the spring northward. And it's something Laprelle and I have talked about doing and it'd be really, really cool to do just to sort of have an eternal spring as you as you go north. That was sort of the germ of the idea that he wanted to do. And, but it took him a number of years to prepare to do that. He went off and he started writing books, but they just didn't do it. But what changed his mind and really got him moving was they had one son. He and his wife, Nell, or Nellie, I believe is her name, had one son. He died in the European campaign in, in World War II. He On April 2nd, 1945, the essay I mentioned, he returned from a meeting to find Nellie holding a letter that declared his son, David, a member of the Tiger Patrol of Patton's Third Army, was missing in action. And then it was several months they found out that he had been killed March 15th, 1945. And Edwin Teal had written every day in his journals. After that, it put him into a very, very deep depression. He didn't write for over 130 days. And in his first writing, this is August 1945, he says, fate is a bully and cowering before it leads to a more sadistic cruelty. I prayed with clean sincerity during those weeks when Davy's fate seemed to hang in the balance. I prayed then that if David could come back, I would endure without complaint The worst that life could bring me, a cancer, my legs cut off, anything, but I was speaking to empty, unheeding space. Later that month, Edwin wrote, Things hereafter will be divided into two groups, things that David saw or touched or knew about and those he never knew. Music is painful to me. It stirs too vividly my emotions. The popular song I heard with David in high school at Auburn, You're My Sunshine, will I ever be able to hear it again? January 1946, about nine months after that, Thiel wrote, I am never-endingly grateful for the gift of work, work that I want to do. Work is the world's finest and cleanest opiate for sorrow. I remember one morning recently I sat down with a feeling I would rather be here in this chair by this desk lamp doing this sentence than anywhere else in the world. Yet they still had that trip that they talked about wanting to take. And Teal writes, that quiet desperation, which Thoreau says characterizes the mass of men, was taking on new intensity. Yeah, he wanted to sit in the chair and write, but they also wanted to get out and explore. And on a snowy morning in February 1947, Teal left with his wife, Nellie. They left Baldwin, New York, on a journey that would take them and their black Buick over 16,000 miles across 23 states. They'd started in Everglades, Florida, and went all the way to the top of Mount Washington in New Hampshire. And then they, they took that trip, and he spent a couple years after that writing the book called North with Spring. I've not read the book. I just ordered it. Plan on reading it. But later in sort of the 1947, 1948 he found that music, again, he could listen to it. In fact, he even ordered, he wrote a little note on the side to order the song, You Are My Sunshine. Here's what he says. Without music, something of the hardness of life enters our hearts. For years after David was lost, music was too much for me to hear. It opened the armor and let the furies rush in. It stirred emotions beyond enduring. And during those years, something hardened inside. Only now am I beginning to find the rest and elevation in music I once enjoyed. I am softened inside without collapsing. We can be softened so much, no more, and still endure in such a world as we are born into on this earth. He wrote that in the spring of 1951. Teal took a risk. His human capital was a bond, but he converted it into a stock to something much more risky because he said, time is ripe to dare to live according to the pattern of my mind or his mind. And then he had the setback of the death of their son, but ultimately overcame. Financial capital is important. Human capital is important. Together they form our complete wealth, although... I've talked about in earlier episodes, there are other forms of wealth. Freedom is a form of wealth. Our health is a form of wealth. Our relationship with our family and community is a form of wealth. Part of living is balancing all those together. There's the financial aspect. If our career and our earnings are more risky, we probably should be a little more conservative in our investing. And if our career and our earnings from work... Are, are pretty much set in stone, then we can take more risk in terms of our financial capital. On the money for the rest of us hub, as I've thought about as we close out this year, things that I'm considering, how can I improve this educational platform? As a quote-unquote retiree, and I get questions from near retirees, those that are younger, those that are actually retired, and, and the questions are, how do I invest my money? How, how much should I save for retirement? How should I spend money in my retirement? How do I make sure I have enough to so it lasts throughout my retirement? Which bucket should I take it from, in, such as tax-deferred bucket, taxable but, bucket? These are all questions I continue to explore and will explore on the Hub to have a more systematic pathway and tool to help you with it. Because these are the things that I'm struggling with and want to better systematize. So on the hub right now, there are tools to help you with your asset allocation, to help you create a model portfolio. I'll continue to add additional tools to figure out how much to save for retirement, how much to spend in retirement, and we'll continue to build that out together. Much of what the hub is today is from input of members of that and I, I appreciate that because they provide guidance to, to, to have a tool that we can all use. So you can get information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I'm not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. General education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great holiday season and a great week.